Welcome and thank you for tuning into the season finale of season nine of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland. Here they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. Now, if you have been tuning in all season, you would know that the focus is on revenge because revenge is mine, said the Lord. <laughs> that is a scripture that is in Romans 12, 19 through 21 or Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on whatever Bible church you're using. I was raised as a Jehovah Witness on the New World Translation. So that's the Bible that I'm using. Or maybe you were raised on the King James Version. Either way, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. Now, it's vengeance or revenge has been the topic for this whole season, season nine. And they say that revenge is a dish best served cold. And all of the cases that I have profiled for this season, um, they have all dealt with a revenge or a vengeful type of motive. And all of the cases that I have profiled, they did not fail to deliver uh, just that. And this whole season uh, of revenge homicides, revenge homicides that we have discussed, um, they all had a clear motive of revenge or I'm going to pay you back for what I feel that you did to me. Some people got a real problem, a real issue with just letting shit go and moving on. Even if that means, you know, less stress for you or whatever, they just cannot let that shit go. People have gotten their payback or their revenge by either shooting people They've gotten their revenge revenge by stabbing people, like in the uh, Leon Cosby case. They've even gotten their revenge by poisoning them, or like in the Ryan Furlow case, or even beating them to death, all in the name of payback or making somebody else pay. But this next case, mm, I ain't even gonna lie, y'all. This happened years ago, years ago, over 20 years ago, I believe. But even today, just thinking about the brutality, the the horror, I can't even imagine the pain, the screams, the suffering, the magnitude of, of fear that they felt. It still brings tears to my eyes, even just doing the research, just imagining what they all went through, especially what these kids went through. Picture instant death. Just picture a pretty instant death or even a slow death. Or imagine some of the worst ways that you could leave this earth. Imagine some of the worst ways, the most painful ways that you could die. If you haven't guessed it already, the case that I selected as this season's finale as the most notorious revenge homicide case occurring in this beautiful state of Maryland, it is the Dawson family burning murders. And just like I've done in every single episode of this podcast, a portion of this uh, podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because the case is now considered a cold case. Ain't nothing really going on. It's just like they were here one minute and they're gone and nothing is being done about it. In every single episode of this podcast, Although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides that may have received a lot of press and attention, on the flip side, this podcast also has a huge goal in assisting with any unsolved homicide that needs to be solved. 
And this episode's unsolved homicide is the beating death of 23-month-old Quanice LaShonda Orange. Now, before I even get into examining the Dawson family murder case, I gotta set the stage or the scene for how Bmore was back then, which is where I lived at. Now, all at, at the time when all of this was going on, the words or phrase "stop snitching," that if many of y'all don't know, that originated in New York. I mean, I, did I just sit here and say that originated in New York? That stop snitching stuff originated in Bmore. Um, I said that because New York was on the tip of my tongue because I went to New York when all this was going on. I went to Harlem and I seen somebody wearing a stop snitching shirt and they was talking about, you know, it kind of that originated in the New York. Nah, boom. In 2004, a DVD called Stop Snitching, uh, it was sold on the streets of Baltimore that briefly showed, um, it was basically a video that had Carmelo Anthony in it with a bunch of dudes with criminal records. They were showing off all their stuff that they got from selling drugs or whatever. And they was warning people of what would happen if they didn't stop snitching. And I don't know. I've seen the video. But, well, B-more is small, unfortunately. And the police can be the Gestapo. And when they eventually saw this video that was circulating all on the street... Damn near all them niggas got, if not all of them, got locked up for various drug and gun charges. Probably even some made-up charges. Who knows? But you're not going to brag about what you're going to do on video and say you stop snitching and all that. And then the cops get a hold of it and don't nothing happen. That's just how it goes down in B-more. And the police, to counteract that whole stop snitching era, they made a, a DVD of their own called Keep Talking. <laughs> now, of course, that video... Ain't do as well as the Snop, Snop Snitching DVD. But I don't even know if that video encouraged people to still come forward and report illegal drug activity like the police hoped they would. But one family in particular, they wasn't having that shit. They was not. They was going to keep doing the right thing because for one, they had to raise five kids in that neighborhood. And don't nobody want their kids to constantly see drug dealing and drug selling all in front of their house. Especially when the father's there. Like, this wasn't no single family parent. This was, the father is in the house. You got five kids. Alright, let me just get into the story. Okay, 43-year-old Carnell Dawson Sr. and his wife, 36-year-old Angela Dawson, they lived in a three-story row home in the 1400 block of East Preston Street in East Baltimore. There, they shared the home with their five kids, who were 14-year-old Lawanda Dawson, 12-year-olds Juan Ortiz, 10-year-old Carnell Dawson Jr., and 9-year-old twins Kevin Dawson and Keith Dawson. The Dawson's youngest children, they were students at Bernard Harris Sr. Elementary School. And let me tell you something, living in East Baltimore is no freaking picnic, y'all. It is rough. Actually, you know what? Living in West Baltimore is rough, too. But living in a neighborhood that's racked with drug dealing, drug using, needles and fiends and dealers everywhere and trying to raise a family and all that, it's not easy. If, if, if it's possible, but who, who want to do that? And especially when you're paying rent. You know, they was renting this house. They weren't even buying this. I mean, at first the Dawson's, they lived in a house. They lived in that house in that area with no real issues at first. No real run-ins, no real problems for a few years. You know, of living there, they had no issues. Um, they were able to come and go as they pleased. Um, just, you know, what you can normally expect from living in East Baltimore. Um, 
that was that happened when they first moved in. But after a few years of living there, drug dealers found they found that corner. And they started creeping in, started setting up shop, and they started hustling and selling, like right at the corner where the Dawsons lived at. And, you know, when dealers find a corner that is, is decent traffic and they can make some money, guess what? That's just how they establish their corner. So as a man, and especially as the father of the house, Carnell and his wife, Angela, they would constantly ask the dealers, can y'all like move, sell y'all shit somewhere else? But they dealers ignored them. They was like, no, fuck that. This corner is too hot. So the Dawsons, they started calling the police, warning them that they were people selling drugs right in the corner at their house, right at the corner of their house. But when the cops would show up, the dealers, they would just leave and, you know, come back when the cops pulled off, when the cops eventually pulled off. It was like a constant cat and mouse game, back and forth, back and forth. And see, ain't nobody got time for all of that. Ain't nobody got time. Don't nobody. It's not like nobody want to call the police. But like move that shit somewhere else. Especially when a family is. You see a family there. They are gonna complain. Don't nobody want to do that. Especially if they not. You know. Partaking in the drugs. Don't nobody want to come home tired for work. And see a bunch of niggas slanging all in front of your door. Especially when you got kids and trying to raise a family. Ain't nobody got time for that. I kind of felt them on that. So both Angela and Carnell. They would constantly just repeat that routine. Of calling the cops. And reporting. Like, whenever they saw the dealers out front selling drugs. And, of course, the drug dealers ain't like that. Because it's disrupting business every time the cops will come out, see what was going on. They will have to stop doing their business. The same routine over and over and over. But the dealers would always just come back and keep doing what they had to do. And the Dawsons just kept on calling. Between June 2002 and October of 2002... June, July, August. It's only four months. According to the Baltimore Sun, that article said that the Dawsons made a total of at least 34 calls to the police reporting the drug activity in their neighborhood, but nothing was done other than the police coming out, you know, taking a look around. When they don't see nobody on the corner, they dip off. And because the drug dealers in that area ain't want to, they ain't want to lead a block, they basically declared war on the Dawsons because they kept calling the police. In other words, they kept snitching. Now, the Dawsons were harassed just trying to get in their front door. Can y'all even imagine that? Sometimes bricks will come flying through their window all of a sudden. Or they will come home from work or come home from school. And dealers would be sitting and loitering all on the Dawsons' front steps. Or hiding their stash all around their steps and all outside their house. And Come on now. So, once drug dealer, one, one drug dealer in particular... He lived directly across the street from the Dawsons and he felt that it was convenient for him to just step outside his house, walk to the corner and quote unquote, go to work, so to speak. And every time one of the Dawsons called the police on him, that shit pissed him off because he had to lead a block. He had to walk away and he had to lose sales and potential other potential money that he could have. Plus, he was being—he had to take the risk of being locked up every time the cops came through. Ain't no—he was—that was getting on his nerves too. Twenty-one-year-old Darrell Brooks was no stranger to crime, and he was no stranger to drug dealing and selling drugs and all that. Years before, as a teenager, Darrell had been on the right path when he worked as a clerk for uh, Mayor Sheila Dixon and Councilman Kiefer Mitchell as a. Um, uh, for the Baltimore City Council. 
But unfortunately, Darrell started, he slowly left that gig and he drifted onto a life of crime. Racking up numerous arrests for stolen cars and drug distribution charges, Darrell was put on two years of supervised probation with a three-year suspended sentence. Darrell was supposed to be uh, seeing a assigned probation officer at least once a month, but he ain't never see his PO not one time, not once since he was sentenced. And B-more is so backed up with people on supervised probation, which is kind of like a freaking joke. It's kind of like the juvenile justice system. I mean, that supervised probation, he was so, it, so many people are on supervised probation that Darrell's probation officer, she ain't never even do nothing about, um, she never even reported him for not showing up for any supervised visits. She never violated him. She never reported him. She never called him. She ain't never do jack. So six months later, Darrell felt like he was basically free to do whatever he wanted to do. So on October 3rd, 2002, Darrell created a two, he created two Molotov, Molotov cocktails, co co cocktails, two Molotov cocktails by filling two beer bottles with gasoline and he topped them off with a cloth like homemade wick. Then at around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, Darrell tossed both these bitches, both these weapons into a back kitchen window of the Dawson's house. The whole kitchen erupted in flames. Angela heard the crash and when she got up to investigate what was going on, 2 in the morning, Angela saw her kitchen on fire. Angela was still able to somehow not only get her family out the house safely, but she was able to extinguish and put out the fire in her kitchen. Nobody was ever charged in this firebombing because other than Darrell bragging about it to his friends, the police had no real proof of nobody doing anything. After that fire, the police did step up their patrols in the area and the police did offer several times as they had before in the past to put the Dawson's in a witness protection program but the Dawson's refused because they were like, we are not going to be ran out of our house by some petty ass drug dealers. It's not going to happen. Especially like, like I said, as Carnell felt as a man. But after Angela's kitchen was set on fire, the family started having second thoughts and started thinking again, like, is this even worth it? The kids was, were, <clears throat> her kids were, they were scared to go outside after that fire. They were scared to go to school and the Dawson's really didn't feel safe anymore at all either. Maybe it just wasn't worth it. And, you know, enough was enough. Let these niggas have this corner. So the Dawson's did consider moving. And they did find another house that they were inter interested in. That they were considering, like, to move to. And it wasn't too far from where they lived at now. But two weeks after Darrell set the Dawson's kitchen on fire. On October 16th, 2002... That morning started off bad with Angela and Darrell got into a verbal argument about the constant drug dealing and she just wanted to get in the house and get the fuck out the way and Darrell had said to Angela, you need to mind your own business. You know what happened to snitches. And this time, a few hours later, Darrell kicked open the Dawson's front door splashed gasoline on the stairwell in the house which was the only way to escape out the house successfully if somebody was up on the second and third floor sleeping like what the Dawson's were doing so basically he he set the 
on the only escape route up on fire. Darrell lit a match and ran back out of the house. This time, the fire erupted quickly. Fire spreads extremely fast, y'all. I'm telling you, in seconds, if you ever light a match and put it on paper and see how fast that spread. So, wood is even worse. Um, the fire spread in seconds. And ex especially when you're using like an accelerant like gasoline, that fire spread quickly. Neighbors called 911 when they smelled smoke and heard the flames searing throughout the house. Some neighbors later reported to the press that they heard Angela screaming, God, please help me. Help me get my children out. I can't even imagine, y'all. As the fire raced through the home, neighbors could only watch as they witnessed Carnell in an desperate attempt to escape the deadly suffocating smoke and flames Carnell Sr., already severely burned and injured with second and third degree burns all over his body, Carnell Sr. jumped from a second floor window, crushing his pelvis and fracturing his skull in the process. Paramedics and the fire trucks showed up three minutes after they got the first 911 call. Carnell Sr. was rushed to John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in extreme critical condition. But Angela, Carnell Jr., LaWanda, Juan, Kevin, and Keith Dawson were all pronounced dead at the scene. Meanwhile, after Darrell lit the match and ran out of the house, he ran across the street to his own house, ran upstairs to his own bedroom, which was on the third floor. Darrell washed his hands, changed his clothes, and went outside to join the rest of the neighbors who had started gathering outside watching the fire. He's like, what happened? Like, what's going on? This murder shocked not just B-more, who are pretty much immune to homicides and violence, even with homicides and violence with kids, but it shocked the nation with the police commissioner commenting to the press. In his words, he said, I've never seen anything like this in my entire career. And because of all the reports, all the calls, all the... um. Basically, all the reports and stuff that the Dawsons had made about the drug dealing and selling and all of that and whatnot, the police were point on point about Darrell in particular, and they wasted no time in searching his home. And when the police searched Darrell's house, they found a blue gap bag with a pickle jar inside of the gap bag, and at the bottom of the pickle jar was a puddle of liquid that smelled like gasoline. And the very next day, after the Dawsons' house was firebombed, Darrell was arrested and charged with six counts of first-degree murder and held without bail. Carnell Sr., he struggled after the fire, and he never regained consciousness after being, after being in a coma since the fire started. And ultimately, Carnell lost, his, lost the fight for his life and died one week later after the fire on October 23, 2002 at 2.25 p.m., on the day before his entire family was laid to rest, where more than 2,000 people showed up to pay their last respects. Shocking absolutely nobody. You already know. For this horrendous, for this murder, this particular one, prosecutors wasted no time. They were like, you know what, I don't care about your record, I don't care about your age. They sought the death penalty for, Dar for Darrell. But to avoid being put to death by the state of Maryland, Darrell pled guilty to seven counts of first-degree murder in federal court. 
At Darrell's sentencing hearing, Darrell was filled with remorse as he gave his statement. At first, Darrell tried reading something that he had already written and prepared in his cell, but then he just crumpled that paper up and spoke from the heart. He was just like, you know what? I ain't never getting out of here. <laughs> I ain't going home no time soon. I might as well just look. So through tears, Darrell, um, he was crying and everything, but he actually said that when he found out that prosecutors had been seeking the death penalty against him, he thought, great, now I can pay for my actions. Now, Darrell said in his words, he said, I thought I deserved nothing but death. This is not for sympathy. This is to let you know how truly sorry I feel. I never meant to hurt nobody. I knew those kids. I love them. I swear there is or never will be the right words to tell you how truly sorry I am. I will never, ever, as long as there is breath in my lungs, ever Forgive myself. Whew. Now, in the end, Darrell received seven life sentences without the possibility for parole. In the aftermath of the murders, relatives of the Dawsons did file a $14 million wrongful death lawsuit against the city of Baltimore, the state of Maryland, and other related organizations basically saying that these organizations should have done more to protect the Dawsons, but the lawsuit was later dismissed by a judge. But later, that ruling was upheld in an appellate by Maryland Court of Appeals. Also, to honor the memory of the Dawsons, the same house that Darrell scorched to the ground, in April of 2007, the Dawson Safe Haven Community Center for Children was rebuilt. The Dawson Safe Haven is a place where mostly poor or low-income kids can go after school to get like a quick snack, play games, do homework, chill, do stuff like that. And the Dawson Family Resource Center was also created to provide emergency housing assistance and education and job training to people who need it. Now, who don't remember this case? There's no way if you are a resident of Baltimore City or Maryland that you do not remember the Dawson's. How you gonna firebomb somebody's house two in the morning when you know they got kids that live there and then be like, well, I ain't mean it. I love those kids. Uh, I didn't think that they were gonna be home. I didn't, I didn't mean for all that. Really? You sound real stupid. This is another dude that will never get out of prison. This, when I heard about this, this shit pissed me off. I mean, take your shit and go somewhere else. Go to another corner. You're not even supposed to be doing it anyway. If that corner is so hot, trust me, them fiends are going to find you. They're going to find you. you making it. I, I just couldn't. It just, oh, it, it burns me up. 22 years old, he did this, and your life is completely over. It's over. You're never coming. The judge just sentenced you. He could die, right? And... He'll leave a note for the next judge. Would they ever look at, uh, do a modification for your case? You're never coming home because you killed, you burnt seven people. You burnt the whole family and still had the nerve to be up there like, I didn't mean it. I didn't know. As if the first time wasn't bad enough. And I mean, I'm kind of like the Dawson's. I mean, why leave? Why leave? That, oh, this shit burnt me up when I heard about this case. I could not believe it. Those kids ain't do nothing wrong. And I'm saying it's just like, ooh, it just, it just got to me. 
it got to me and I just never I was like the I felt like the commission the, the police commissioner I, I've never seen nothing like this in my life there are you know ways things that drug dealers do to you know their payback and stuff like that but that's usually against people that's you know um in your profession these people were mind, working class people minding their business. The only thing they wanted you to do was move your shit somewhere else. Your illegal shit somewhere else. So that shit won't rub off on our kids. That's it. So I'm sorry. This one burnt me up. I'm sorry if I got a little bit emotional and loud and stuff like that. But it, it burnt me up just even doing the research about it. Even thinking about it. I know this happened a while ago. But yeah. This was definitely going to be selected as one of Maryland's most notorious revenge-filled murders for this season. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Now, moving right into this episode's unsolved homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention, a lot of uh national media this podcast it also shines a light on the many many homicide cases that we see in the state of maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot of press or any mention at all these type of homicides are so common in maryland that it's not a lot of time in this podcast to focus on just one sometimes when a person gets murdered in the state of maryland you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report of what happened, and that's it. And the number of homicides that occur in this state that are unsolved is unbelievable. I mean, it's it's staggering. It's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do everything by themselves. You know, solving homicide cases is like putting a puzzle together. It's not like what you might see on TV. It's not like somebody just automatically confesses and evidence just falls out the sky in the state of Maryland it's not like that at all you know homicide detectives are often overworked they're underpaid they outnumbered they stressed out and they flat out beaten down all the time you know and what happens to the cases or clues that they come across where there is zero evidence where it's like nobody is talking at all you know what happens when nobody is uh, there's no evidence, nobody's talking, um, or cases where it seems like the victim's past or their current lifestyle. It just seems like the detectives are slowing their feet or ain't nothing really being done. It's no investigation. Nothing is not moving because you get a sense or feeling that the detectives, they're not really trying to investigate the whole case because the victim quote unquote had it coming and they're spending their time with other cases it just seemed like nothing is being done with these forgotten homicides not because nobody cares anymore but because the public just simply forgot all about it because guess what right when we're trying to digest this one we've been bombarded by another homicide it's like in the state of maryland we almost become immune to homicides in the state well 
this podcast is a different type of podcast because on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserved or the press that they deserved and nobody even remembers it or even knows about it anymore. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the beating murder of 23-month-old Quanice LaShonda Orange. On December the 2nd, 1986, a mother who lived in the 8,000 block of Green Orchard Road in Glen Burnie, or Pasadena, uh, woke up at around 6.30 a.m. and discovered that her child, 23-month-old Quanice LaShonda Orange, had a runny and a stuffy nose. So the mother left out of the house to go get the baby some tissues. And when she got back to her home, she noticed that now Quanice's lips were blue and now she wasn't breathing at all. Her mother tried to revive her, but she was unable to do so. So she called 911. When EMS paramedics showed up at the house, Quanice was rushed to North Arundel Hospital, but the baby was pronounced dead at 9.41 a.m., just three hours after her mother found her with a stuffy nose. The medical examiner listed Quanice's cause of death as blunt head force trauma, with the matter being a homicide. Nothing about some runny nose. It was um, two other adults and one child in the home at the same time that Quanice was found damn near in a comatose state. So why in God's name has nobody ever been arrested for this 38-year-old unsolved homicide? Not unless I'm, my research is wrong. Um, excuse me? Why come nobody was never arrested for this? If this, would have, this happened in uh, 1986, if this happened in 2004, let me tell you something. And there's a dead 23-month-old baby in the house. Adults are being locked up in that house until somebody confesses about what the hell went happened. I don't know what happened with this one and why it wasn't picked up. Or like I said, maybe my senses are off. But I don't understand why no one was ever arrested and charged for this 38-year-old unsolved homicide of a 23-month-old baby. Weird to me. But I'm, I'm going to treat this as any other unsolved homicide case that I have profiled. And, you know, assume that it's unsolved. So if you have any information at all that you would like to provide for this 38-year-old unsolved homicide of a 23-month-old that should have been solved the day after it happened, please do not hesitate to call the Anne Arundel County Police Department at 410-222-4731. If you want to remain anonymous and just call and just blurt something out that you know, you can call 410 222 4700. Give the detective something to work with. I mean, something. You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1 7 Lockup or 1 756 2587 on your numeric keypad. You can also call the Cold Case Department at 410 Once again, those numbers that you can call. 
to provide any information for this 38-year-old unsolved homicide of a 23-month-old baby, you can call 410-222-4731. You can also call 410-222-4700 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or on your numeric keypad. If people don't know what 7-LOCKUP means, you can call one 866 Seven five six two five eight seven. You can also call four one zero two 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 three four five zero. And like I said before, you can remain anonymous in this unsolved homicide. I don't even understand why this is still unsolved. Like really, people? Like why? Sheesh. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access um, prior episodes, let me tell let me tell y'all that um, if y'all tuned into me at all last season, um, I told my listeners that I was producing um, a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode, and the episode that I profiled were um, the accused child killers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa, and yes, the documentary is now currently available. It was supposed to be shown on um, Hulu, Tubi, and all of that. But because of the extreme graphic nature of the documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, and also because I really don't think that people give a shit, um, networks shied away from me. They told me that the documentary was too graphic, um, too much for network TV. I'm like, how are you going to show headless Jeffrey Dahmer victims, the actual victims, but... What I have is too graphic, but I guess because the documentary does include um, true facts, actual crime scene photos and stuff like that, that they kind of shot away from it. I'm not going to edit or, you know, pull my videos even more than what I've already done. And I've just decided just to release them independently, you know, because... The, to me, in my opinion, um, the brutal nature of the crime scene photos, they add to the emphasis of the innocence of Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. And in order for me to fully emphasize the fact that these two defendants did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugarcoating, no cut cards or none of that. I mean, this is 2024. Like, what kind of way do y'all want it? Do you want it raw or do you want it? sugared or watered down with latex i had to show what was done to these kids in real life and there's no way the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders for no reason that uh that was this extremely brutal and if you watch the documentary you'll see who i believe that these murders were orchestrated by and especially after talking to um you know the parents of both of the victims of all three of the victims and also relatives of Don Canella and um, Paula Carpio. There's no way they've done this. Neither one of the family don't even believe they did this, even after all this time. Either way, the documentary is available via email only. It's not for everybody's eyes. I can admit that. And this documentary was not produced to make money. It wasn't to do to get likes or to, you know, downloads or anything like that. It's, that's another reason why I didn't go the whole network route. 
I cannot and I will not be censored, especially when it comes to my books, especially when it comes to this podcast, and especially when it comes to true crime and facts about an injustice that is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. Um, eventually, the documentary will be available on that website. I got a deal. I'm working out a deal with Spotify where um, we're working something out where I can just post it on um, my website. So eventually you won't have to email me um, and it won't just be available by email only. Um, but if you s- subscribe to the mailing list to see the documentary and if you email me specifically, like email me or respond to the email on the website and just say, look, my name is blah, blah, blah. This is my email address and I want to see the documentary. I will email the documentary with a link to you within 24 hours. The link will come through a, um, well, the, the documentary will, will come through a link called We Transfer. All you have to do is click on the link and download it and you'll be able to see it. Um, but you have to do that within, I believe they give you seven days to do it. After that, the link expires. So, but I have to warn you though, the video is very graphic. As I said, you know, Hulu, Tubi, and all of them, they was acting all funny. So they was like, no, it's graphic because of his graphic content. They was like, actually said, compared my stuff to porn. Like I said, this was kitty. I was like, what? So, and all, and anyway, and also, I'm not going to lie. To be honest, I truly believe that with the state of the world and the way it is now, like nobody cares that these two illegal immigrants are locked up serving life sentences for crimes that they didn't commit. They don't give a fuck because they're like, yuck, they shouldn't have been over here anyway. And that's, they're like, they got what they deserve. They really don't care. And that's why I produced a documentary too, to open up people's eyes about what's really important. Like, really? And while you're at it, on the website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, please be sure to subscribe. Subscribe. Why can't I get my words together right today? (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, uh, you know, and what I mean by paid subscribers, I mean, I do release, um, I do have an episode out that y'all got to pay to see to hear that because it's not for everybody's ears. It's only for people that have been subscribing and it's also going to be a couple more episodes that those episodes, what I'm going to say, it's going to be mm, a little iffy. So those will be um, episodes that will be available only to members that have subscribed. So if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll be able to click on um, and you want to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored, uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. Um a lot of people think that I just woke up one day and like, you know, the current fad is everybody got a podcast and then all of a sudden, boom, let me start a podcast. Nope, that is not even hardly true. And it is a real therapeutic message to this whole true crime world of gore and mayhem and violence and all that other stuff. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, why I'm so crazy. Why I'm so fascinated with true crime. Like I'm people ask me all the time, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, why are you into blood all the time? Like you've done crime scene cleanup. You've done um you've you've got murderers in your family, and that's all you write about is bad stuff and court. Well, click on the episode and maybe you'll understand why. 
<laughs> while you're on my website, you um, which is Maryland's most notorious murders.com again, and Maryland is spelled with like MDS and not the whole state spelled out. So, um, while you're at my site, uh, Maryland's most notorious murders.com, be sure to check out any prior episodes that you may have missed with all of the different seasons that we have focused on, like suicide murders, uh, teen killers, sick twisted pedophile or sex related type of homicides or even parasite killings like the focus was for last season you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled maryland's most notorious murders dot um 1990 to 2008 maryland's unsolved homicides volume one and my local bestsellers until i get caught the true story of a serial rapist in baltimore and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. All of these books, including my other books, um, actually I have eight books out. It's a lot. So if you have, don't know what the names are, I'm going to go through them really quick. Um, they're all on Amazon. All you have to do is Google TL Lincoln for Amazon and my books should pop up. First one was Child of Baltimore, which was my story. Uh, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Then we had um, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, which I just discussed already. Then we have Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. Then we had um, The Lady Who Changed the Baby to the Bed, which was a little bit about my story. Then we had um, uh, Dope in the Pill, um, how a pharmaceutical company orchestrated the biggest drug pandemic ever seen. That was my last book. And I also had another book, um, Until I Get Caught. The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is a book that I recommend that every, every woman read. But you can also check me out on season one of Payback, which airs for the TV One Network. You can also see me on the Oxygen Network for uh, Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV One's Justice by Any Means, which again, profiled my true crime story. Uh, you can also find me on TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, who were profiled for the Parasite season for this podcast. You can also check out my latest article for the Crime Report where I'm also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast. And last but not least, many, many of my listeners have been messaging me on how they can donate to this podcast. On my website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, there is a donate icon on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, via Anchor, via Coffee, or the Buy Me a Coffee icons. Um, thanks so much for all your support and for the ones that have already uh, contributed it or supported on that. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, please, please, please be sure to tune in next season, which will be a couple weeks, not too much longer, where another gruesome, another high profile season that we have, um, coming up next should be on the radar. I wonder what the topic will be for season 10. Season 10, y'all. Season 10. Mm, mm, mm. 
what do you think the topic of focus will be then? And believe believe it, um, believe it or not, y'all, I still ain't touched the surface. I still ain't got, you know, even half of all the murders um, occurring in the state of Maryland. And I think we've done almost um, 90 episodes so far. Um, but still, I can't wait to get started on season 10. Take a little couple breaks, a couple weeks. Take some time off to regroup and get all this murder. You know, when you do a true crime podcast, sometimes you got to take time away and just regroup and stop thinking about something other than murders and blood and gore and crime and death. So, like I said, take a little bit of a couple weeks off. And then I will be back with another gruesome, high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland that will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. And this has been a Savage Life production. Thank you.